0: One of the lessons, brethren, that we learn during the Days of Unleavened Bread is that we are to examine ourselves. We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're to examine ourselves as to whether or not we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, whether or not we are developing the mind of Jesus Christ. Self-examination should not be limited to just one day or one period of time. But it's something that we need to be doing all the time. You know, if you spend seven or eight days during the year examining yourself and then spend 358 days not examining yourself, we're not going to grow. We need to take time. Probably every Friday night is not a bad idea to sit down and just think about whether it's Friday night or Saturday morning and kind of reflect on the week. Did I walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ this past week? Did I deal with people as Christ would? And even during the day, you know, David has said that he meditated on God's Word all day long. You know, He wasn't in a monastery. He wasn't out on a hillside contemplating his navel. You know, he was thinking about as he was functioning Am I living according to the word of God? Am I doing things God's way? And we can do that, examining ourselves almost momentarily as we live our lives. You know, did I do things the way Jesus Christ would? Or when a situation comes up, to ask yourself ahead of time, how would Jesus handle this? What biblical principles should I follow in making a particular decision? What I want to do today is to look at another question that Paul asked and Paul addressed to the church in Corinth. In you know, 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about examining ourselves. But let's look at another question, another issue, that Paul addressed several times to the church in Corinth. If you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, we find Paul addressing another issue that is extremely important to each one of us today, just as important as it was almost 2,000 years ago. Corinth was a big city, it was a port city, it was on a major trade route between uh, Asia Minor and Rome. A lot of ideas floated around in Corinth, a lot of strange religious ideas floated around in Corinth, and these people had to deal with a lot of temptations a lot of different ideas. They had to sort a lot of things out. But notice what Paul asks them, charges them to do in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 13. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Are you in the faith? Are you holding on to the truth? Do you not, excuse me, he says, prove yourselves, test yourselves, examine yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you're disqualified, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Are you in the faith? Are you holding on to the faith? Or are you tempted to drift off in a different direction? following some person or some idea that is very different from the faith of Jesus Christ. This is no small issue, because Paul addressed it earlier to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13. Paul is writing to this church, and they were getting off track in various ways. They were justifying various ideas. They were tolerating practices that should not be practiced in any church of God. As he concluded this letter, he said, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, and be strong. Watch, stay alert, don't be deceived is what he's telling them. Stand fast in the faith, hold on to the truth. Don't be misled. Don't compromise. Don't drift away from the the truth. Be brave. You're going to have to take a position. You're going to have to stand firm. And he says, be strong. Don't buckle under pressure. Don't drift away from the truth. My question to you this afternoon as we begin the sermon, do you know for sure what you believe is the truth? Do you know for sure, are you confident that what you believe is the truth? Have you proven what the truth is in a variety of areas where you've nailed it down and you know what the truth is? Mr. Armstrong used to say you need to know that you know that you know that you know that you know what the truth is. Do you know that you know? that you know what the truth is. Have you taken the time to do that on a number of important issues? Let me ask another question. Have you, could you, are you being led astray by following your own mind, following different ideas, following people that might be close to you but that are off base spiritually? Have you been Could you be deceived? You know, I've deceived myself from time to time, and it's embarrassing to realize (laughs) my own reasoning led me astray. Yours could too. In fact, I think you haven't ever lived if you've never deceived yourself. Because it's just part of life. Some people think, well, I could never be wrong. I could never be deceived. I know what the truth is. Be careful. Be careful because it is possible. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Notice something, we're here in 1 Corinthians, very interesting set of verses. 1 Corinthians 19, Paul is concluding the letter. He says, the churches of Asia greet you. The Quill and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord. But notice he says, the churches of Asia greet you. Turn quickly over to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Notice what Paul says about the churches of Asia later. These are churches that he had probably raised up, had worked with, spent time with. Beginning in verse 13, 2 Timothy chapter 1, Hold fast the pattern of sound words. Hold on to the truth which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit... Who dwells in us. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me. He told the Corinthians, the churches of Asia greet you. Here he's telling Timothy, all those in Asia have turned away from me. They've drifted off in a different direction, among whom are uh, Phagellus and Hermogenes. Actually, mentions people by name who were leading other people astray. These were people that once knew the truth. You know, we're familiar with the scriptures. Matthew 24, where Jesus was asked, What's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He says, Take heed, because many will come in my name and will deceive many. At the end of the age, he's saying, That's going to be a big deal, big problem. Many are going to come in my name and deceive not a few, not one or two here or there. He said they'll deceive many. This is one of the situations we're going to have to deal with today. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, let's turn there quickly, Paul again is talking about conditions at the end of the age. God is a God of love. He places these instructions and warnings here so that we are not led astray. That we're not caught up in a wrong thing. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, difficult times. We're going to have to figure out what the truth is and where it's not being preached and all those things. Men will be lovers of themselves. They love their own ideas. They love their own positions. They want to be in a position of influence. They'll be lovers of themselves, their own ideas, lovers of money and so on. Down in verse 5, it says, having a form of godliness. There are a number of different groups that keep the Sabbath today and the holy days. But they have a very different approach to preaching the gospel and a number of other different teachings. They will have a form of godliness, but denying its power. Well, you can love the Lord, but you don't have to keep all those rules. You don't have to keep all those, those, those Old Testament things. That's all been done away with but you can love the lord a very different message denying the power prophecy is not really that important you know what's really important is you love everybody that god has given us prophecy for various reasons very important reasons having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away don't follow them is what paul is saying for of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, gullible men, <laughs> gullible people. Well, I, I, I'm a good friend of his, so I've got to follow him. Well, it sounds good to me. I've never known this person to be wrong. We've got to be very careful of these things because people will come along and try and deceive us. And men, names are mentioned here. But it says in verse 9, They will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all. In time, it's going to become very obvious. They're not preaching the truth. They're not being used of God. In time, these things will become obvious. What I want to focus on today in the sermon, I want to ask the question, How strong and stable are you spiritually? How strong and how stable are you Spiritually, ask yourself the question Are you in the faith? Are you holding on to the truth of God? Do you know what that truth is? So that you can hold on to it. A number of people today are confused about what the truth is about a number of subjects. How do you become spiritually strong and stable? Are there things that we need to do to become spiritually strong and stable? What are some of those things? Why is it important to even talk about being spiritually strong and stable? We need to know the answers to these things because these are vital questions. I've entitled the sermon, Spiritual Stability. Spiritual Stability. Because we've watched people over the last number of years leave this organization, go to another organization, go to another organization, bounce back and forth. Ideas come up. Oh, that's interesting. Haven't heard that before. And they drift off in that direction. You know, with the internet and people with uh, unique ideas, it's one of the reasons we've got 300 and some spin off groups from the Worldwide Church of God. All you have to do is have an idea, put it on the Internet, and people will begin to follow you. It's amazing. Seems like P.T. Barnum said something about that (laughs) a long time ago. And that's not a put down. That's a fact. That's what happens. That's reality. Let's address the first question. Why is spiritual stability important? Is Is this just Second winale up here quoting? Or does the Bible have something to say about spiritual stability? In Matthew 5:48, part of the Sermon on the Mount, basic Christianity, Jesus makes a statement, and there are Old Testament scriptures that tie into this too, but in Matthew 5:48, Jesus told his disciples, "Therefore you shall be perfect, or you should become perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect." You might even do a little study on the word perfect, because people say, oh, I, I could never be perfect. Nobody's perfect, so therefore we don't need to worry too much about this scripture. The word here for perfect comes from the Greek word teleos. "telios," from which we get our word probably telescope. In other words, we focus in on something. We see a big picture. The word teleos or perfect means complete. It means come spiritually mature. Strive to become spiritually mature. See the big picture. Focus on the big picture. Become strong and stable. Full grown to the point where you understand the big picture. This is what Jesus was telling his disciples. Strive to become perfect. Where you see this big picture. It all makes sense. You're strong. You're stable. You're not blowing back and forth. But this theme runs through the book of Matthew. Matthew 7, again, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses a parable of building your house on a rock or building your house on sand. You know, nobody in their right mind is gonna build a house on sand. But go to the beach, notice how many houses are (laughs) on the beach (laughs) that are built on sand. That have a difficult time probably getting insurance because of where they are located. I bought a picture for my grandson a painting of a lighthouse that's been built on a rock, and then down in this little sandy cove is a sandcastle that some little kid built. And the waves are coming in and washing away the sandcastle. But this lighthouse up on a rock is not moving. Jesus said, a wise person will build their house on a rock. The word is Petra, this large, immovable rock that doesn't move, like the rock of Gibraltar. He says, the rains came, the floods came, the winds blew, and nothing happened. It stood. It was strong. It was stable. He says, a foolish person builds his house on sand. Rain comes, winds blow, washes away. You know, if we take time to prove what it is that we believe, if we nail down issues, you're not going to be blown back and forth by doctrinal controversies. But if you never take the time to do that, you'll be blown away. I've used this example a fellow I roomed with in college years ago at Ambassador College. We were both teachers. He wound up going to the field as a minister, and I went to the field also as a minister. When changes began to come about 10 years ago, he began preaching new things. People in the congregation said, how can you preach what you once proved was wrong? And he kind of shuffled and said, well, I I, I never really proved everything. And he went off and took people with him. He became a shipwreck. And others that followed him, wrecked. Of course, they don't believe they're wrecked. (laughs) But these are things we need to nail down. We need to pin down so that we can be strong. Jesus uses this example, Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus was talking with his disciples, talking about how the church would be built. Verse 18, he says, I say unto you that you are Peter, Petros, a small pebble, and on this rock, Petra, this big immovable rock, and that rock is Jesus Christ, his life, his teachings, his example. You might jot in your margin there, 1 Corinthians ten 4, That Jesus Christ is the rock that's being talked about here, his example, his teachings. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell or the grave will not prevail against it. It's going to stand solid because it's built on a rock. It's strong, it's stable. Again, why is this important? Why is this important? To build our house, to build our beliefs, to build the church on a rock, something that's strong and firm. If you turn to Revelation chapter three, notice the promise to the Philadelphia era of the church of God. We've been called for a reason. In verse 12 of Revelation chapter 3, it says, He who overcomes, I will make him or her a pillar in the temple of my God. We've been called to become pillars in God's temple in Jerusalem. He shall go out no more, and I will write upon that person a new name, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God. We have been called to become pillars in the temple of God. To become teachers in the coming kingdom of God to explain the truth of God all around the world, you know we've got to get certain concepts out of our mind and write concepts into our mind. When I first heard these scriptures, I thought of you know am I going to be a pillar locked in a room, stand there you know for a thousand years? I didn't understand that these pillars go out they'll be functioning as teachers, educators, leaders. Turning the world right side up. This is our calling to become pillars in the temple of God that are strong, stable, immovable, that keep things on course. To illustrate this, turn back to Galatians chapter 1 and chapter 2, where Paul is describing what happened to him, talking with the Galatians. He's called, he was taught by Jesus Christ, went down to Arabia. Spent some time there to be taught. Verse 18 of chapter 1 of Galatians says, Then after three years, after a three-year training period, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now if we jump up to verse 1 of chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Timothy with me. The issue was over circumcision, whether males, Gentile males coming into the church needed to be circumcised. But notice this this note here in verse 2, And I went up by revelation, in other words, God made it obvious that I should, and communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I went privately to those who were in reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Paul went up to headquarters, To check whether or not he was on target with what he was teaching. He didn't write in and say, this is what I'm teaching, you either agree with it or don't agree with it, but I'm going to do it anyways. He went up to check to see whether or not he was on target. He didn't start his own church, he wasn't doing his own thing. He was working with headquarters. Why did he do that? Down in verse 9. It says, And when James, Cephas, or Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, they were the ones keeping the church on course. And Paul went to check with them to see if he was on course. When James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, that he had been called, Paul had been called, trained, he was preaching to the Gentiles, They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. You know, spiritual pillars God can use to keep the church on course, to teach the truth to others. We have been called to become spiritual pillars in the temple of God. What do you make pillars out of? Rubber? Grass? Straw? I've seen houses actually built out of straw, straw bales, and they put plaster over them. Uh, But you don't make pillars out of bales of straw. You make them out of what? Marble, stone, steel, something that's strong, something that's stable, something that doesn't move, something that doesn't wobble in the wind. We've been called to become pillars. We can't afford to be going off on doctrinal jaunts all over the world. (laughs) and all over the map. We've got to hold fast to what the truth is. We've got to understand what the truth is. God wants pillars, people who know what the Bible says, who can recognize false doctrines and false teachings, and help others understand what the truth is, and avoid being led off in a wrong direction. That's what pillars do. To build the kingdom of God, God is going to need a group of individuals who can function as pillars, that he can build the kingdom of God on and around. Notice the challenges that we have to face today, quickly, in Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Beginning in verse 5, it says, For this reason I left you in Crete. Paul is writing to Titus, giving him instructions of how to organize and, and work with a church congregation. I left you in Crete that you should set in order, you should organize the things that are lacking and appoint elders. He didn't say go in and elect the most popular person, uh, you know, the best-looking person, the, the richest person. He says, you appoint elders. And there are other descriptions of what qualities he was to look for. Verse 7, for a bishop, a leader, must be blameless, a steward of God. Stewards take care of things. They take care of doctrine. They take care of people. Not self-willed, not coming up with your own ideas, not quick-tempered, argumentative, not given to wine, not violent. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. Not promoting your own ideas. Not promoting your own doubts. If you've done your homework, you shouldn't have a whole lot of doubts. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort, encourage, and convict. Show them where they're wrong. Those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those among the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. He was not telling Titus, now you need to be tolerant. You need to just listen (laughs) and uh, draw everybody out and listen to all their theories and ideas. He said, no, you put a stop to it. You put an end to it. This is what pillars have to do. Teaching the things which ought not to be taught for dishonest gain. Becoming a spiritual pillar is extremely important. We've got to grow. We've got to know what we believe if we hope to be in the kingdom of God and be used of God. So it is an extremely important concept. But how do we become strong, stable pillars in the church of God? What are some of the things we need to do? How do you do it? You know, whenever I was working with students and helping them plan careers I would encourage them You know, go find somebody that works in your field and ask them how did they do it how did they succeed how did they get where they are I started asking people like that whenever I was looking at a certain field <laughs> it was amazing some of the answers well I knew so and so I said what qualifications do you have well not a whole lot <laughs> I just knew the right people but you know they're only going to go so far they're only going to go so far that way. How do you become strong, stable spiritual pillars? Let me give you five quick points. Number one, 1 Thessalonians 5:21. First Thessalonians 5:21. And the first time I heard this scripture read was when I attended a church of God service. Grew up in a Protestant church, a number of different ones, never heard this scripture read. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Prove all things, test everything, and hold fast to what is good. Look into it, don't just buy into it, don't just believe it. Look into it, nail it down. Is it true, is it not true? You know, my background in science and scientific method is to look for evidence. And I connected with that 40-some years ago to prove it. Mr. Armstrong would say on the program over and over and over, don't believe me, believe your Bible, check it out, see if it's there. If it's not there, don't believe it. If it is, then you have to deal with it. I think I was about the first month before I came to church, I spent every Sabbath in the library because I didn't know where else to go. Checking up on this, checking up on that, looking into this, looking into that, spent probably eight hours there. I was there when it opened and I was there when it closed. I finally got the telephone number of a minister and I called him up and I said, I'd like to keep the Sabbath. I'd like to go to church. He said, do you keep the Sabbath? I said, well, I've been going to the library every Sabbath for the last month. He said, well, why don't you walk across the street to the YWCA where we're meeting? <laughs> so I did. But I, I'd spent a whole month looking into things because I realized I was gonna, my life was going to change. And I didn't want to do anything foolish. So I did look into as many things as I could. And I was shocked at what I found. And Mr. Armstrong said, don't believe me, believe your Bible. So you go to the Bible and you find out, wow, it really is there. How come nobody ever told me this before? Examine what you believe. Don't just take it lightly. You know, when the changes were taking place in the Worldwide Church of God 10 years ago, people were being told, trust us. Trust us. Christ is leading us. Whereas Mr. Armstrong was always saying, Don't believe me. Don't trust me. Believe your Bible. Get back to the basics. A vital key in developing and growing as a strong, stable pillar in the church of God is to prove what it is that you believe. Take the time to do that. You don't have to become an expert in these areas, but take enough time to prove so that you know that you know that you know what the truth is. That's point number one. Point number two. Find out what the truth is by getting all the facts on a subject. Find out what the truth is. Does the Bible say we should keep Christmas or we should not? Does the Bible say we should keep the Sabbath or does it say it was changed? What did Jesus Christ do? You know, nail these things down. Find out what is true. John eight forty four. it says, You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You don't have to be confused if you know what the truth is. You find out what the truth is. Get all the facts on a subject. You know, all too often, some people get two or three facts that agrees with what they want to agree with <laughs> or with what they want to believe, and they ignore what else is out there that will lead you down the wrong course. And John 8.32, it says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And John 8.44, it says, Satan's a liar and the father of it. And he promotes lies. Candy-covered lies. <laughs> well, it tasted so good. It's so easy. Satan uses lies. We've got to be careful that we're not misled. Point number three, compare the claims and teachings of people with the Scriptures. Compare the claims of teachings, churches, people with the Scriptures. The Bereans did this. Acts 17, verse 10 through 12. And this is held up as an example for us. They were hearing certain things from certain teachers and then they were hearing certain things from Paul. And it shows us in the scriptures how they dealt with this situation. Acts 17 verse 10 says, And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. These, the people there, were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. In that they received the word, they listened to what Paul was saying with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, as a result of their study and comparing the scriptures, many of them believed. And we need to take the time to do this. Something may sound good, but we need to compare whatever we're hearing with the scriptures. Not with necessarily the writings of Mr. Armstrong, Dr. Meredith, myself, others. Well, Dr. Meredith said this. Well, (laughs) what does the scripture say? Is he saying the same thing? If he is, then you can believe it. If it's not, if there's a difference, then go ask him a question. Or ask any of us. You know, we should be able to give a hope or a reason for the hope that lies within us. Here's why I believe what I do. Here are the scriptures that it's based upon. And we shouldn't have somebody say, well, what about this scripture over here? And what about these scriptures back here? Uh, Well, I hadn't looked at that. I was actually in a class one time at another college, another church organization, that believes it's wrong to drink alcohol. And we were in a class on alcohol. And uh, this person went through about 20 different words that were translated, uh, wine, strong, drink, whatever, whatever, whatever. Uh, just showing that he had looked up all these words. And one of their own students in this university said, what about, isn't there a scripture back in the the Old Testament that says that uh, it's our right to use some some money for wine and strong drink? Second tithe. He said, uh, uh, it's time for a (laughs) break. Here was a man, a minister, who had just gone through 10 or 15 words that were all translated wine, strong drink, this, that, and the other thing, related to alcohol, and he'd, he'd, he'd never, I think he said, I, well, I've never really checked that scripture before, and then he announced it was time for a break. And he did not come back and answer the question because it was contrary to what he was trying to teach. And there were other situations I saw at, during that same program. Compare the claims and the teachings of anybody with the scriptures another scripture in Isaiah 8:20 it says if they speak not according to this word there is no light in them if they speak not according to this word there is no light there is no truth there is no understanding in them this is why we need to know the scriptures if we don't know the scriptures we can be misled point number 4 use god's spirit if you use God's spirit, you will grow. If we don't use God's spirit, we will be misled. Turn to Second uh, Timothy. This is one of my favorite scriptures. Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. <clears throat> Paul is giving Timothy advice as a younger person. He's telling Timothy about powers that he can tap into if he would and if he will. Verse six, he says, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, and stir it up, bring it to a boil, fan it into flame. Use it, don't just let it set there. Stir up the gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, a spirit of doubt, a spirit of confusion. If you find yourself saying, Well, I'm not sure about all these churches, you know, and I I'm not sure really what the truth is on these things. And I've got real concerns about <laughs> the ministry and so on. That doesn't come from God. God's spirit is a spirit notice of power. The word is dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. <laughs> Something powerful. has to do with conviction. I know what the truth is because I proved it. I've seen the results of people going this way and that way. This is the fruit of God's spirit, a spirit of power and of love where we care for people, where we're compassionate, but also of a sound mind, a discerning mind, a mind that is capable of making wise judgments. These are the fruits of God's spirit. If we use that spirit, we should be growing in conviction of what the truth is and where the truth is and who is using that truth, of where the work of God is. We're not confused about those things of love and of a sound mind capable of discerning right from wrong, true doctrines and false doctrines, right directions and wrong directions, and people who are being used of God. And people who are not being used of God. You read 2 Corinthians 11. It talks about Satan's ministers. who will declare themselves apostles. And they will do this and they will do that. Those are God's terms. Satan's ministers. And we've got to be able to discern where they are and where they are not. Where the truth is and where the truth is not. And just by way of quick review, how do you receive God's spirit? You buy it. A guy by the name of Simon tried that. It didn't work. We've got to repent. We've got to repent. Come to the point in our lives where we realize <laughs> I am wrong. I've been wrong. I'm capable of being wrong. I'm human. We need to repent of who we are, of what we do, what we think. Have hands laid on us, be baptized. That is the commitment we have to make. Then after that, Acts 5.32, it says, God gives his spirit to whom? Those who obey him. Those who obey him. And the implication is if we don't obey God, he will withdraw that spirit. There's not one saved, always saved. I remember talking with a minister one time, and he says, Are you saved? I was a little kid at that time. I looked up to him, and I said, Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Seven years old. And this big man leaning down, Are you saved, Sonny? had another minister tell me years later, he said, Wouldn't you like to know that you haven't made? I said, Paul didn't know that. (laughs) He hoped that he did. But these are things, you know, God gives His Spirit to those who obey Him. We can't break the Sabbath or or forget about the Sabbath or uh, compromise on going to the feast. Well, I'll go a couple of days, but I've got other things I'd really like to do. We're going to lose God's Spirit. We've got to be obeying God in order to receive His Spirit. Another principle in 2 Corinthians 4.16. It talks about the inward man must be renewed Daily. We have got to do our part to stay close to God, doing regular Bible study, praying regularly. You know, with regards to prayer and Bible study, it's like the chapstick commercial. Don't go out without it. You know, Don't go out without it. You'll be running on fumes. And things will not go that well if we don't do these things. But we've got to use God's Spirit. And if we do, we are going to benefit big time. If we don't, we'll be in trouble. Point number five, we need to be able to recognize and avoid being deceived if we're going to be pillars in the temple of God. We've got to be able to do that. We mentioned Matthew 24. You know, it mentions there three different times in Matthew 24. Let's look at that quick. It's got to be important because it's repeated three different times. Jesus was asked in verse 3, What's going to be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? Verse 4, Jesus answered and said, Take heed, stay alert, that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Down in verse 11, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Down in verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders. So as deceive, if possible, even the elect. Some people have said, oh, the elect can't be deceived because this verse says it. No, it says if it's possible, if you're not careful, if you don't have your guard up, then we can be deceived. So we've got to guard against these things. We can be deceived by others. And as I indicated earlier, we can deceive ourselves. And this is what we've got to be careful of. Jeremiah 17.9, it talks about the human heart is desperately wicked. We've got to be careful because we can deceive ourselves. Somebody sent in an article that was in the um, Washington Post recently, and it's talking about self-deception. And it gives a number of examples of presidents who have deceived themselves. They use the example of President Bush after the invasion of Iraq. He landed on an aircraft carrier and he said, mission accomplished. We're still there. We're not done. There's a lot of things to do. It gives another, a number of other examples about presidents that I'm not going to go into. But I just wanted to mention several things. And these were this is information gathered by people uh, college professors who are studying the subject and the phenomena of self-deception and they have come to the conclusion, let me just read some of their conclusions self-deception is a universal trait where people convince themselves of something that's not true you can do that I can do that self-deception requires work Because you have to hold the truth and the untruth in your brain at the same time. And if you're aware of what's true and aware of what's not true, this is what lie detectors can detect. Because you're struggling with yourself and your palms start to sweat and your heartbeat goes up. Uh, You get nervous. And lie detectors can detect that. What they're detecting is your mind Struggling with the truth and with the untruth. Self-deception involves focusing on uh, evidence that supports your view and ignoring evidence that contradicts your view. Someone is deceiving themselves. Well, they they find what evidence they like, and they focus on that, and they tend to ignore other evidence that doesn't agree with that conclusion. They mentioned that self deception usually happens very subtly. You're unaware that it's happening. These are things we've got to be very careful about. They also mentioned self deception involves uh, a situation where you lose touch with reality. See, when you think it's true, you ignore what <laughs> is contradictory as basically you're cutting yourself off from reality these are things we've got to be extremely careful about what's interesting then the authors of these articles talk about an evolutionary explanation for self-deception and say so we can't understand how we could evolve uh, this this brain and it, we could be deceiving ourselves <laughs> what they don't understand is what we read about in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, 2, that Satan is the uh, prince of the power of the air. He puts ideas and thoughts in our mind. He can lead us down a wrong path. And if we're not close enough to God, we're not going to catch it in time. And we'll wind up being deceived. But the Bible tells us these things. These researchers don't. Second 1 Peter chapter 5, just to conclude this part <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 5, Paul is giving advice. He's talking to elders here primarily, but also to others in the church. In verse 8 of 1 Peter 5, he says, Be sober, be alert, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Look up the word devour it means to eat, to swallow, to drown to overwhelm someone. And oftentimes when we are deceived, we feel overwhelmed. Boy, this is coming at me and this is coming at me. I don't need this test now. (laughs) We're not thinking straight. This is how Satan operates. All this stuff comes at us. We see all this stuff on the internet. I was talking with a person one time. and They said, I'm so confused about these things. I said, you spend time on the internet? Oh yeah, I'm on that every day. I said, turn it off. You'll get back to the scriptures. Look at what's right and true. And after we talked for a little while, I said, you know, I think I'm not going to use the internet near as much. That is looking at all this stuff that floats around. But Peter's saying here, keep alert. Your adversary, the devil, walks around like a luring lion, seeking a many devour. Resist him. You can't resist him unless you recognize him. You've got to recognize him first. uh realize, I've got to be careful with this one. And then resist, and if you know the truth, then you can resist even better. Resist him steadfast in the faith. You've got to know what the faith is, then you hang on to it, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by uh, the brothers in the world. So these are things that you can do to grow spiritually and to grow in spiritual stability. What I'd like to do finally is look at a list of things that we can use as a checklist for ourselves. The Bible talks about uh, examining ourselves. When I was uh, in Europe on this past trip, I was able to spend a couple of days in Switzerland with our elder there, Mr. Joseph Felber. Mr. Felber has been a pilot for about 20-some years. So we went up on a small plane that he flew, and it was been a long time since I've been up in a small plane. It was very exciting flying over the Alps and doing a couple circles around the Matterhorn. Beautiful day. You could see almost forever. What was interesting was before we took off, he gets out this notebook that was about an inch thick. And he starts going through a checklist of 20 or 30 things you know, flaps up, breaks off, this off, whatever. He did that twice because we took off twice. But he had this checklist. And if, you know, unless it was written out all these things, he would probably forgot something. We need checklists periodically to look over, you know, am I doing this? Do I believe this? Uh, doesn't hurt to It doesn't help to have a checklist like that. Let's look at some of these things that we can check ourselves on and ask ourselves, are you in the faith? Ask yourself, am I in the faith? What do I believe about ABCD? Am I on target or am I off in left field? Let's look at some of these quickly. Number one, do you believe in the real God? I'm not just using that title because it's a title of one of our booklets. I'm asking, do you believe in the real God? You know, there are people today saying that God doesn't exist. God is a virus of the mind. Uh, You know, you're believing in a medieval superstition if you're believing in, in religion. These are the ideas floated around today by aggressive atheists. In America, about 95% of our people believe in God. But they don't understand much of what God has said and they don't understand how he operates in many cases. 95% believe in God, but they don't understand the real God. You think about it. You know, a number of studies have been done to show that large percentages of people who believe in God can't name the Ten Commandments. They can't name the Gospels. They don't know who wrote the Gospels. They think Joan of Arc was uh, Noah's wife. <laughs> and these are the results of some of the studies. They just don't know the Bible, but they believe in God. How do you obey God if you can't even (laughs) remember the Ten Commandments? And then people are told, oh, they're not for us today. They were all nailed to the cross. So you do whatever feels good to you. This is the world we live in. That is not the real God. We need to understand how the real God operates. Look at Proverbs, for example. This is not the God that many people worship today Proverbs chapter 1 and some of these things are sobering you Now, people today are told God loves you and or God is love and Jesus loves you and if you're good you go to heaven and that's about all they know about religion but notice in Proverbs chapter 1 this is the real God speaking Proverbs is a book written to people that are young enough to still learn Proverbs chapter 1. I've got to get the right page here. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 1, it talks about the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. If you want to be smart, if you want to learn, you want to succeed, use biblical principles. Don't ignore them. In verses 7 and 8, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, my daughter, verse 8 Hear the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the law of your mother. Listen to your parents. Learn from them. For they will be graceful ornaments, that is the advice that you're given, on your head and chains about your neck. Now these are ornamental chains. But notice in verse 25, Because you disdained all my counsel. God is talking to anyone that will listen. Because you disdained or you ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will laugh at your calamity. God's going to do that? He says, I will laugh at your calamity, not because he doesn't care. He said, You've ignored my advice. You've ignored my advice, therefore, you're going to have to reap what you've sown. That's tough love. But that's how God operates. I will mock when your terror comes. Again, it's not because he doesn't love people. It's because he has offered advice. It's been ignored. And then he's going to say, basically, you're going to have to deal with what the results are going to be. You're going to have to live with consequences. That is how the real God operates. Notice in Jeremiah, Jeremiah, God called the Israelite peoples. He wanted them to be an example and a light to the world. They didn't do it. They were blessed incredibly. We have been blessed incredibly today. And then we're exporting all kinds of filth and all kinds of weird ideas all over the world via Hollywood and the Internet and other sources. But when you read some of these things about how the real God operates, how he thinks, how he functions, it is sobering. In Jeremiah 7, verse 16, in fact, he's talking about in verse 7, That uh, down here in verse 8. Let's start there first. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you don't know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name? You do those things, and then you expect me to listen to you? Verse 15, I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. Notice in verse 16, Therefore, do not pray for this people. God said that. Do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession for me to me. For I will not hear you. This is what God says. They're going to have to reap what they sow. And then he does talk about uh, uh, you know, forgiveness later and things like that. But this is the God of the Bible. He says, I've given you information. I've given you knowledge. I've given you commandments that would bless you and be a benefit to you. But if you don't listen, you're going to have to reap what you sow. You check these other scriptures on your own. Jeremiah 11 verses 14 through 17. Jeremiah 14, verse 11, says basically the same thing. Don't pray for these people. They're going to have to learn the hard way. This is how God operates. He is a God of love. But He also is going to allow us to learn the only way we're going to be able to learn if we don't do it right. This is the God of Scripture. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus told his disciples that you're going to have tribulation in this world. I remember watching a Billy Graham film one time, and these two people were converted. And the wife said to the husband, boy, being converted is just like having God in your back pocket. It's so neat. Jesus told his disciples, you follow me. You're going to have tribulation in this world. People are going to like you necessarily. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be difficult. But he says, I've overcome the world. You can too. You know, if you endure, you hang on, you do what you need to do. You know, people were told several years ago because of the shooting that we had up in Milwaukee. One person was saying, Living Church of God can't be God's church. Look what God let happen. He wouldn't let that happen to his church Read Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. You know, James was killed. Peter and John were thrown in jail, beaten. This is what happened to people that preached the truth. This was what the real God let happen. We're going to be tried. We're going to be tested. And we've got to be able to endure through these things and know that there is a real God and know how He operates. So do you believe in the real God? Or do you have this fuzzy notion that, uh, that isn't true? Point number two, is the Bible the Word of God? Is the Bible the Word of God? Or is it just a nice book that you can kind of take or leave, that you can do as Thomas Jefferson did, cut out the parts that you like and throw away the parts you don't like? And he made a Jeffersonian Bible. That he was an intellectual of his day. I've used his example when I took a philosophy class in college. We walked into the room, I noticed a Bible laying on the uh, professor's desk. I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. It was a church school, Presbyterian school. The guy picked up the Bible on the first day, threw it in the corner in the trash can. He said, Look, no lightning. It's just a book. Somebody else told me that a professor did the same thing in a class that he took. <laughs> This must have been a gimmick that they learned in a teaching class or something. You know, if you go back and you read the scriptures in Ezekiel, it talks about Ezekiel 7, read the whole chapter. It says, because you have disobeyed, disaster upon disaster is going to come upon you. And towards the end of the chapter, it says, they will know that I am the Lord when they see these things happening. I got an email from my son yesterday, daughter-in-law down in North Florida. He sent a map that was published by the Forest Service in Florida showing the fires in Florida. And the whole map was covered with fires. Scott talked on the phone last night. He said, Dad, you wouldn't believe it down here. He said, my car is covered with ashes. He said, you can only see about a quarter of a mile. He's in North Florida. And these big fires are there in North Florida and South Georgia. Fires on the West Coast. You know, we're living in a period of time that we're going to see things get worse. God is real. And as Ezekiel says, they will know. The time will come when they will know that I am the Lord. I am in charge. I'm bringing a disaster on my people because they've turned their back on me. That's the message. This is the real God and it's in the scriptures. But is the Bible the Word of God? John seventeen seventeen, Jesus mentions on the night before his crucified. Thy word is truth. Do you believe the word of God is true? Every word of it, every bit of it. People today don't. Do you understand that the Bible is unique? It's not like the Koran, is not like the Book of Mormon, is not like the Upanishads, is not like any other book. It contains prophecies of detailed information of things that are going to happen that these other books do not have. You read the scriptures in Isaiah 41, verses 21 to 24, and Isaiah 45, verses 9 and 10. God says, I predict the future way ahead of time and he says I will bring it to pass I will make it happen Muhammad doesn't say that the Quran doesn't say that these other books don't say those things we've used this information in the booklet uh, The Bible Fact or Fiction the Bible contains almost 2,000 specific prophecies the Quran contains none they're not the same The authors are not the same. It's not the same God. We need to understand these things. Point number three, the law of God. Has the law of God been done away with? Did Jesus really nail it to a cross? That's what hundreds of thousands of Protestants believe today and Catholics. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2 quickly and verse 14. And this is one of the scriptures that is used. But we've got to be able to understand what's being said and be able to explain it. It was interesting in the Worldwide Church of God, we had literature explaining it one way, then they published literature explaining it the other way. Same person, I think, <laughs> did some of the explanations. You know, truth does not change, but human explanations and attempt to explain things do change. And when things begin to change, you know it's not of God. Colossians chapter 2, beginning verse 14. Actually, we've got to start here in verse 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses, and when we sin, there is a death penalty on our heads, and an uncircumcision of your flesh, He, Jesus Christ, has made... uh, alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements or handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You know, the Ten Commandments are never called the handwriting of ordinances. They're never referred to that way. Or the debt of uh, the bond of indebtedness; these are things that are on our heads because of our sins. Our sins were nailed to the cross, not the Ten Commandments. And yet, people are being told today, "Well, you're not perfect; you can't keep them." Christ kept them for you because He loves you, so you don't have to keep those old things. And yet, Jesus said in John chapter. Um, 14, verse 15, again part of the discussion that Christ had with his disciples the night before he was crucified. He said, if you love me, then the commandments don't mean anything. No, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. They're not done away with. Again, I, I should be preaching to the choir here. You know these things. But people have drifted away knowing these Things. This is why we've got to hold on to what is right and what is true. In Isaiah two, verses two to four, we're told that the law will go forth from Jerusalem in the coming kingdom of God. It's going to be the pillars in the temple of God that will be teaching the laws of God to the entire world. That's why we've got to understand these things, learn to live by them. Point number four, checklist. Is the Sabbath required? today are the holy days required today we've got to be able to answer those questions Luke 4 16 it says Christ went into the synagogue and kept the Sabbath as his custom was Luke is writing in Acts 17 verse 2 it says Paul went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and preached as his custom was Luke is using those terms very specifically It was the custom, it was the habit of Jesus Christ to keep the Sabbath. It was the custom, it was the habit of Paul, some 20 or 30 years after the crucifixion, to keep the Sabbath. The early church kept the Sabbath. It was changed in Rome in the early 300s. And people who would not keep the Sabbath were persecuted. That's why people keep the Sunday today. We need to understand the scriptures. We need to understand history. These are facts that can be nailed down. In John chapter 7, Jesus went up and kept the feast. He told his disciples, you go up to the feast. I'm not coming yet, but then he went later, quietly, privately. So he kept the Sabbath. He kept the holy days. We're told in Zechariah 14, the nation that does not come up to Jerusalem to keep the feast will not get any rain. They don't come up the next year. Other things are going to happen. They will be encouraged. They will be encouraged to keep the Holy Days. (laughs) God does have a sense of humor, but He also has a mission and a purpose. And part of our job as pillars in the kingdom of God will be to explain to people, do you understand why it didn't rain last year? Do you understand why your crops failed? Would you like to have a successful year next year? Come to the feast. Try it. You'll like it. You'll prove it. Follow it. Do it. Point number five. What is the true gospel? What is the true gospel? People have gotten tangled up in this recently. Is it only the kingdom of God? Are there many different gospels in the Bible? need to nail these things down. let just turn quickly to one scripture in Acts chapter 20 and notice the context in which it is given. Paul is speaking with the elders of the church of Ephesus. He says, look, I'm not going to see you guys again. Uh, let's review some basic things. It basically, is what he's doing. <clears throat> Acts chapter 20. Beginning in verse 22, See now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city. In other words, I'm getting vibrations, I'm getting indications that things are not going to be good, saying that chains and tribulations awake me. But none of these things move me. It doesn't bother me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God so grace is part of the gospel this unmerited pardon this favor that god gives to those that he calls indeed now i know that you all among whom i have gone preaching the kingdom of god will see my face no more so he's talking about the gospel of grace he's talking about the preaching the kingdom of god which is also part of the gospel therefore i testify to you that uh, this day that i am innocent of the blood of all men For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel, the whole plan, the whole purpose of God. And the gospel has a number of different dimensions to it. We could go through a number of other scriptures, but we've already done that. And people that say that the gospel is not related to Jesus Christ, uh, grace is not part of it, they don't understand the scriptures. We've got to look at all of them, all of the scriptures. You can't just grab one here and there and ignore other ones. That's deception. That's deceiving yourself and others. Point number six, the Elijah issue. Mr. Armstrong was. Was he? Was he not? What do the scriptures say? Go back to the scriptures. Malachi says that before the great and fateful day, uh, that when Christ returns, that Elijah will have to come first. So there is going to be someone preparing the way for the return of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 17:11, Jesus said that John the Baptist was a person that fulfilled that scripture initially. Matthew 17:11. The first Elijah or the first person that would fulfill that scripture, Jesus said was John the Baptist. But the Bible does not identify who the second Elijah will be. It's just not there. There is no biblical identification, so we've got to speculate. (laughs) But the Bible tells us, don't add, don't take away, don't start reading things in. You know, we will see whether or not Mr. Armstrong was. We don't have to go out on a limb on that. But if you read through the epistles, Paul never mentions about an Elijah. Peter never talks about an Elijah. John never talks about an Elijah. It was not a towering doctrine in the early New Testament church. It's just not there. And when someone when someone wants to make a doctrine out of it, they're adding things to the scripture. We will see what role Mr. Armstrong has played. Uh, you know, we don't want to lock ourselves into things and then have to be embarrassed by backing up and backtracking things will work out that way but the second Elijah is not named it's not mentioned in the epistles it was not a big issue you know we don't find Paul writing saying you've got to believe that John the Baptist was the Elijah or else you're out of here we don't find that there but you hear that today in a number of different places number eight the identity of the Israelite nations Is it important? Is it not important? Does it matter? Do you know? Are you convinced? Well, it's just an interesting idea. We were told ten years ago that uh, it's a fascinating concept, but it's not a salvational issue. In other words, it has nothing to do with your salvation. That's what some have said. Turn to Matthew chapter 10 where Christ mentions the concept. You read it, come to your own conclusions. Matthew chapter 10, Christ is talking with his disciples. Gives their names, early part of the chapter. Down in verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter into the city of the Samaritans. They did that later. Their commission was to go to the Jews and the Israelites first. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You go. I've used this example. As parents, you tell your kids to do something, and they uh, keep on playing, and they wander off and play and do something else, and they forget to do totally what you told them. How would you respond? Oh, you poor little dears, you forgot again. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, you'd say, What did I tell you to do? Who, me? Uh, I forget. Let me help you remember. <laughs> Oh, that, yeah, okay. (laughs) And off they go. The, The disciples were told what to do. I want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Tell them who they are. Tell them why they were blessed. Tell them what's going to happen to them as a result. You know, this is not a racist concept. God chose a group of people that were slaves. He said, look, I'm going to bless you but you're going to have responsibilities. Now, if you don't follow through with those responsibilities, there will be consequences. And our people need to understand that. And what's interesting is, Jesus was told this, Matthew records this, and when you check Josephus, Josephus wrote in the first century, they knew where the Israelite tribes were. Josephus says there are but two tribes in Asia and Europe, Subject to the Romans. While the ten tribes are beyond the Euphrates until now. They're over there towards Babylon and Assyria and are an immense multitude. The apostles knew where the Israelite tribes had gone. James addresses his epistle. to The twelve tribes scattered abroad. You know, he didn't put this on the internet, press a button, spam it all over the world in hopes it hits somewhere. They knew where they were. You look at where the 12 apostles went to. They went to India. They went up into southern Russia. And four or five of them wound up in Britain, of all places, at the ends of the earth. Why did they go there? Because history says that Israelite peoples went there. The people in the Church of God have been told, it's not a salvational issue, and besides, the whole idea comes from a crazy guy lived in the 1700s or 1800s, they thought he was the king of England. It's it's, such a crazy concept. What they don't tell people is that in the Scottish Declaration of Independence, we're going through this, written in the 1300s, the Scots say, our people came from Scythia, between the Black and the Caspian Sea. They came by way of the Mediterranean, came through Spain, came up here. This was four or five hundred years before this crazy guy lived. You go to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, written about 900. It says the Britons, the people that came into Britain before the Anglo-Saxons, the Britons came from Armenia, that area around the Black and the Caspian Sea. About 500 A.D. A British writer called Gildas talks about... uh, Our people, Israel, are being punished by the Anglo-Saxon invasions coming in. He says, Our people, Israel, are being punished. Another source, that says, The Romans transported some warriors from this same area, Armenia, southern Russia, first to the Danube. And then about 5,000 warriors were transferred to Hadrian's Wall in southern Scotland and they brought with them elements of legends that had become part of the King Arthur legends and Sir Lancelot. These, these legends didn't start in England. It appears they came from that area of Armenia and Scythia. What do you do with that information? Are we following a myth? Are we following made up stories? Peter says we did not follow myths and made up stories. Second Peter chapter 1. He said, we were eyewitnesses. We saw what we're telling you. Yet you know, We need to nail down these things so that we understand. You was know, Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33. God says there, if you see the sword coming on your people and you don't warn them, then when they perish, their blood is going to be on your head. And we need to ask some hard questions. Who is preaching the gospel Of the coming kingdom of God. Who is focusing on Bible prophecy. We live in an era today. When everything is to be tolerated. And we tolerate all kind of different doctrines. And anybody that draws a line. Says this is right. This is wrong. Is biased. Is bigoted. Jude writes in verse 3. That we need to earnestly contend for the faith. That was once delivered. Why is it important to be spiritually strong and spiritually stable? Revelation 17, verse 14, the latter part of it. Verse 14, it says these, talking about these ten kings, make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him, the saints that return with Him, are called, they're chosen, and they're faithful. Brethren, let's strive to be spiritually stable so that we can be strong pillars in the coming kingdom of God.